Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what uh, this weekend and tomorrow represents. It is a time, it is an opportunity for us to be grateful to you for all of those who have served in the armed forces of this nation. Lord, we thank you for shedding your grace upon us. I pray that we would take a moment to thank those in our midst who have sacrificed and given up so much in their lives uh, to serve their country. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter what time period or culture or anything that we are living in and going through, that your word remains steadfast and true. The foundation of Jesus Christ never changes. Lord, we are so grateful for that as we are in, living in a world in the middle of an upheaval. And the Lord has been in an upheaval ever since the first sin of mankind. Lord, we long for, as, as Romans 8 describes, we long for that day when you will make everything right. We come before you now. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, that these words would become alive and, and reign in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At one point or another, I'm sure all of you have seen a similar publication of these certain memes that have been gone, gone around social media for a long time now. These present specific examples of why the English language is so hard to master. Here are a few of them. Yes, English can be weird. It can be understood through tough, thorough thought, though. <laughs> all those words look very similar, and you would think they'd all be pronounced the same. Uh, but no, they are not. The next one is this. I before E, except when your neighbor, Keith, received eight counterfeit beige sleighs from feisty, caffeinated weightlifters. Weird. <laughs> or these specific sentences. The farm was used to... Produce, produce. <laughs> when shot at, the dove dove into the bushes. And my personal favorite, the soldier decided to desert his dessert in the desert. <laughs> Especially in that last example, how, how one would pronounce the word all has to do with what? the sentence structure, and the context in which it's written, right? Those are the only clues as to the pronunciation of the words and the meaning of the whole sentence. Get the sentence structure and the context wrong, and you have a complete misunderstanding of the sentence. In our passage this morning, the context is crucially important to an accurate understanding of what Paul is talking about as well as the best way to apply what he's saying to our lives. Ignore or misunderstand the context, and you'll have a completely inaccurate understanding of what these verses are saying. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the ruination. And just like last week, what we may have been taught or have heard about or understand in a cursory reading of a Bible passage may not necessarily be what it actually means in its context. These first couple of verses in our passage this morning are one of those texts. Here's what I mean. 
If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to be picking up in verses 16 through 18. And we read, follow along with me. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. We'll stop there. Knowing what we know, what the Bible says elsewhere about the temple of the Holy Spirit, at first glance, our knee-jerk understanding of these verses is that they're referring to what as the temple? Our bodies, right? From what we know in the rest of the New Testament, that this temple that's referred to in these first couple of verses are, are referring, is referring to our bodies, if that's how we understood these verses, that would take these verses down a completely different direction, wouldn't it? Most likely down the path of the result of suicide or murder. Destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit, either by taking your, own, your life into your own hands, or taking someone else's life, and what would be the result? That God would destroy you. Either a promise of God taking revenge on you, or immediately sending your soul to hell. That's the direction that that would take with that understanding. We know from God's word that there is not necessarily a cause-effect relationship between taking a life and God outright destroying yours, is there? We know from elsewhere in scripture that that's not the case. We know that there's oftentimes grace. We know that God always has a plan. We also know that the only basis for being sent to hell is not whether or not you took a life, right? That's not the basis, including your own. But what? That you rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and salvation from an eternity without God. That's the basis. We see that all throughout the New Testament. Some of you might be wondering, what in the world, where in the world are you going with this? This is why. Why I went through all of this was to point out how dangerous it can be to rip a couple of verses out of their immediate context and what dangerous road that can lead to. A whole false and heretical doctrine just out of a misunderstanding of a couple of verses. Do you see that? That's why I went through all of that. So if these verses are not talking about one's physical human body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, what are these verses referring to? Well, let's take a look at the context. Paul has been describing the acts of ministers building on top of a foundation between our passage last week and our passage this week. That foundation, right? If you remember, that foundation is always or should always be what? Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. That foundation never changes. It never changes with what year it is or what the cultural environment is or how we're feeling on any given day. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. The salvation won for us through his death and resurrection will always be our foundation for this life and the next. We saw last week that this section of chapter 3 right before the verses that we're talking about this morning, verses 10 through 15, within the immediate context and connection with church leaders and ministers, is not talking about what will happen when every believer will stand before Jesus to account for his or her life and receive reward for what they did for his glory. 
That will happen, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, but what verses 10 through 15 are specifically referencing is the process by which ministers will be judged for how they led Christ's church. When every believer stands before Jesus, the process may very well be the same as what is described in these verses, but these verses, 10 through 15, are specifically describing the judgment slash rewards process for ministers before Jesus. Because of that, it's what ministers build on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ with the churches that God has entrusted to them that then gets put to the test in verses 10 through 15. Paul contrasted the wise expert builder with the unwise builder in those verses, right? All right, getting some nods, that's good. All right. The wise expert builder who holds to and teaches sound biblical doctrine and emulates the wisdom and love of Christ in connection with that will have his words and actions survive the fire like gold, silver, and precious stones. The unwise builder, while still retaining his salvation because that's based on Jesus' work and not his own, will have all of his worthless and self-seeking words and actions burned up like wood, hay, and straw and will only escape like he's running out from a burning building with just the clothes on his back. Now in verses 16 through 17, Paul throws one more builder into the mix. The one or ones he's warning in verse 10, quite possibly the church leaders who are leading the division in the Corinthian church. How does most biblical scholarship come to that conclusion? Well, Paul starts out this whole section of building on top of the foundation of Jesus with verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and then he ends verse 9 with God's building. He carries on that theme through the rest of the verses. If the Corinthian church is God's building with the foundation of Jesus and the church leaders building on top of that foundation and the building made, being made up of those who put their faith in Jesus for their salvation and are therefore filled with the Holy Spirit, what would then be another term for that building? The temple of God's Holy Spirit. So in verses 16 through 17, after Paul describes the wise expert builder and the unwise builder, he describes the outright destroyer. That's who he's describing in verses 16 through 17. Even though the unwise builder, uh, with, with the unwise builder, most of his words and actions burned up, he wasn't out to actively dismantle the building brick by brick. That's not what he was out to do. Paul is using some very strong language here. Those who are being divisive and leading the division should listen to this warning very clearly. This division is destroying the church, and if you are actively destroying the church by being actively divisive, you've been warned, is what Paul is saying here. You will have Almighty God, in verses 16 through 17, you will have Almighty God, the one whose temple this is, to contend with, and believe me, he is not one you want to contend with. Jesus' overall purpose for his church is to make her holy, as verse 17 relates to. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus is hard at work, making his bride, the church, blameless and holy, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless.
Anything that stands against that or detracts from that process will be removed by Jesus as he transforms his bride into a beautiful and holy work of art. Paul is warning those church leaders creating division and as we'll see further on in this letter, fostering and promoting sin and prideful endeavors, you are directly standing against Jesus' transformation process of his church. And is that really who you want to be directly standing against? This last warning goes hand in hand with how Paul finishes up this section that would become the end of chapter 3. So we talked about the ruination. Next we talk about, we're, we're talking about the reminder. Like a good teacher again, Paul brings up what he previously taught to remind his readers of what he's already said and how it connects with what he's talking about now. None of this is unsubstantiated or unfounded. It all connects back to the theological foundation he's laid down in chapter 2, contrasting the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. Follow along with me in verses 18 through 20. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. One of these verses comes out of Job, the other one comes out of Psalms. The wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God are on two different tracks heading in two opposite directions. The road of this world's wisdom will always be futility and frustration. That will always be the road of this world's wisdom. That is the only direction it can head in. Why? Because it was the way that God designed it to be. Here, contextually, division in the church based on selfishness and pride, i.e., the world's wisdom, will always and only head in that same direction. God already turned all that on its head when he established the good news of salvation by his grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of that, anything based on human wisdom will always be futile. Always, because it's heading in the opposite direction from what God has already established. Therefore, as Paul says, one must become foolish as the world understands foolishness. That is the foundation of Jesus Christ, no matter how foolish it sounds to the world, in order to begin to understand the wisdom of God. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes more and more to the truths of God's word and leads us to obey them, more and more of God's wisdom will be revealed to us. Paul's already set up for what he brings up again in verse 19 in the first chapter when he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's turned everything on its head. In these verses, God's wisdom is foolish to the world, and that's exactly the way God designed it to be. Now in verse 19 of, of chapter 3, Paul turns it around to say that the world's wisdom is foolishness to God. Those who follow worldly wisdom are actually following folly in the eyes of God. If it's not the wisdom of God, 
That's all it can be because it goes completely against God's wisdom. It's heading in the opposite direction. The world thinks it's pretty wise without God, doesn't it? It thinks it's got everything figured out from morality to sexuality to spirituality to what happens when you die. Everything. It thinks it's got everything figured out. But anything and everything, if it's not based on God's word and God's wisdom, is human wisdom and therefore only foolishness. If it's not revealed through the Holy Spirit, guess what it isn't? God's wisdom. In fact, this is always the end result of human wisdom in God's eyes. The second part of verse 19. For it is written... He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Not only is human wisdom useless to God and therefore his children, but it's the very thing God uses to trip up those who base their lives on human wisdom. Why? To show them how foolish their so-called wisdom is. Just look at some of the arguments that human wisdom has come up with. There are still no good answers for the origin of the universe. Still, you can look it up. Scientists, even Stephen Hawking, simply don't have any explanation of where the original particles that led to the so-called Big Bang came from. They have no explanation for that. To try to explain anything in our universe without God, whether it be the origin of the universe, the beginning of life, human sexuality or gender identity, relationships, morals, anything will always trip itself up. That will always be the end result of human wisdom, being tripped up to the point of having no answer or explanation. This brings Paul to his conclusion in this section. Verse 21. So then, let no one boast in men. As if he hadn't said that enough up to this point. So then, let no one boast in men. There's nothing to boast about when it comes to mankind. Paul has hashed this out over and over again so far in this letter. He started out with this truth in chapter 1, verse 26, where he called the Corinthians to take a look at themselves and see how there was nothing to boast about in terms of what they contributed to their salvation. And he said, for consider your own calling. Look at yourselves, guys, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I don't think those words were received too well when they were read. (laughs) What did you just call me? He's telling them to look at themselves. There's really nothing to boast about, you guys. They themselves weren't all that great. It wasn't because of who they were that they were given salvation. Since their salvation had nothing to do with who they were, what skills and human strengths humans had should be no basis for comparison or pride. In fact, Paul went on to say God chose the opposite of everything the world held dear to bring about his salvation for humankind. He used the God-man who is prophesied to be despised by everyone to bring about salvation through death and resurrection. That God-man spent time with all different kinds of people, even those who the world had kicked aside. Then God chose to communicate this message of salvation through an agent that was generally thought of as doing nothing at that point, the Holy Spirit. 
Anything the world holds dear based on pride and selfishness has nothing to do with God's plan of salvation for humankind. Nothing. Even Paul admitted that the Corinthian salvation had nothing to do with anything he had to give. For if it did, since he was such a poor speaker, the Corinthians would probably still be spiritually lost. If it had anything to do with him. Paul then took a step back to lay down the theological foundation for how our, our salvation has everything to do with God's plan, God's way of bringing it about, and God's initiation of revelation about it. Because of that, it simply cannot be discovered through human convention or human wisdom and will only remain foolishness to those whose spiritual eyes have not been opened by the Holy Spirit. And all this leads to the simple conclusion. Men have nothing, nothing, nothing to boast about. For the only thing worth boasting about is the discovery of true wisdom, and even that has nothing to do with humankind. So since all of that's the case, humans have nothing to boast about in themselves about their own spiritual gifts, nor the church leaders given to them. You see Paul's line of thinking here. This then flows seamlessly to Paul's closing words of chapter 3, the end part of verse 21 into verse 23. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. There, amen is right. There's a sequential order that Paul uses here. He first starts out with the immediate subject he's been rebuking and teaching on for the past couple of chapters. It doesn't matter who is the minister at the church in Corinth at the time. That's no basis for division, but rather it's a basis for unification. All the teaching of Paul, all the teaching of Apollos, even all the teaching of Cephas or, P or Peter, doesn't matter who's teaching it because the message should all be the same, the truth of God's word. They're merely messengers. The message is the only thing for them to focus on. Not only that, but they were not subject to anything in this life. But rather, they were overcomers of everything in this life and partakers of everything in the next. There is nothing in this world, including persecution, world and civil leaders, the greatest minds of human wisdom, attackers and critics of God's word, the prince of this world, the enemy of our souls and his powers of spiritual darkness that has any power over us. Rather, in Christ, we have the power to overcome anything the world has to throw at us. Not only that, but because we have salvation in Christ, we can enjoy what God has blessed us in this world. We know that it isn't it. That anything this world has to offer is not it. But we can enjoy what God has given to us in this life, doing the work He has for us to do, and looking forward to our eternity with God. Any and all circumstances that would arise in life have no power over us. Poverty and destitution have no power over us. Sickness, injury, physical pain, or terminal illness have no power over us. Loss of loved ones have no power over us. Disappointment, anxiety, depression, 
addictions or broken dreams have no power over us. Rather, we have the truth of what is happening, that God is using this life to stretch our faith, deepen our faith in Him, reveal more of Himself to us, and empower us to live this life for Him. Death has no power over us. For we know that it is not something to be feared, but something to look forward to, as Paul did. Because Christ defeated our greatest enemy, death, death is only a portal to victory. That's all it is. Death is only a portal from this world to the perfect one. When we take our final breath in this world, we take our next in the presence of our loving Savior. We have the promise that all of our tears, pain, and turmoil will be wiped away as we rejoice in the light of our Lord's presence. We have no fear about present things or things to come. We have no fear of the unknown because we have taken refuge in the protection of the one who has determined all things to be. We can trust him with all because he's the one who has written all of our days and what will happen in those days in his book. He is holding us in the palm of his hand and no one, not even ourselves, can snatch us out of his protection. He is our provider. He is our comforter. He is our grower. He is our protector. He is fighting our battles. He is preserving us until we enter his presence in death or he comes back for us. Why does nothing in this world or life, even death, have no power over us? And why do we have all the promises that God has given to us as his children? Because all of these things are in Christ Jesus, which we have by God's grace. And therefore, all these things are overcome by and given to us by God. That's how Paul ends verse 23. That not only removes any bit of human pride from us, but it gives us strength. It gives us strength to face another day. It gives us comfort in times of excruciating pain and when we experience loss. It gives us spiritual and emotional provision in times of depression and anxiety. It gives us peace in times of physical pain, torment, and illness. It gives us joy when we're faced with our mortality. It gives us power when we are in the midst of intense spiritual warfare. It gives us all these things because in all of these things we have God. And God is all we need because that's exactly the way he designed it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these inspiring and empowering truths in your word. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that we will always be in the palm of your hand. No one can snatch us out. We thank you for all of the ways you are to us and everything that you do for us. We thank you for the unchanging foundation of Jesus Christ, that which we can hook our anchor into and know that we will never be tossed to and fro. Lord, we thank you that you give us peace and comfort in the midst of whatever we're experiencing and joy. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that's growing us and stretching us. You are the one who has provided us a way to be restored to you. You were the one to defeat death so that it is only a portal to victory. And Lord, you are the one who empowers us to live each day of this life for your glory until you, you 
call us home, or you return for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with